A Mouthful of Air, a poetry podcast with Mark McGuinness. No Tango Mas for Anna and Ian by Mick Delap. With this ring, and down four hundred years, the voice of the giver plucks out the words engraved inside its handcrafted golden circle. No Tango Mas que da. I've no more to give you. It should go on, except my heart. No tengo más que darte, pero mi corazón. I have nothing more I can give you except my heart. But the ring with its clasped hands was too small for all the words, and she never had a second chance. His Girona was rushing to join Spain's armada, sailed late for England, glory, and the shock of the Channel battles. Drake the fireships, storms, and helter-skelter flight. He survived them all. The struggle to weather Scotland, the breakout north about into the Atlantic. But turning south at last, round Ulster, just as he dared to start dreaming again of light and warmth and home, their luck ran out. In the dark of a late October northerly, the Girona struck Lacada Point, and the high sea clasped every soul on board to its cold, breaking heart. We don't know his name, only his ending. About her, nothing, except that golden ring, lying now full fathom five, washed by the tides deeper each day into the changing months and years. Four centuries on, divers found it, encrusted in sea growth, prized it loose, and brought it back up, rich and strange, to emerge unchanged. No tengo mas. I am nothing except in giving. Perhaps it says, giving myself to you has made me. It could be... I've never given everything, even an unvarnished. I have nothing more to give. Each ring hammers out its own conclusions. And something gleams from the ashes, endures the collision between our joys and losses. No tengo mas que dar. Being and giving is what we are.
Mick, where did this poem come from? Well, in one sense, it came from an exhibition room in the Ulster Museum in Belfast. Mm -hmm. Because uh, I'd gone over to Belfast with an early draft of of my book, um, Opening Time, which didn't at that point have this poem in it, to uh, get some editorial advice from the very fine Irish poet Sinead Morrissey. Mm -hmm. And in between the first time I'd talked to her and returning to talk more with her, she said, why don't you pop next door to the Ulster Museum? So I did. And I was very excited because I was brought up with the stories of the Armada, the Spanish Armada, back Mm -hmm. in 1588. Um, And uh, I was brought up by the sea in a naval port in Portsmouth. And the stories of the Armada were very fresh. And then as I developed in my early, early uh, adulthood, developed more and more interest in the sea, the first of the Armada ships to be that had been wrecked on the way south, on the way fleeing round Scotland and then fleeing south down the Irish coast, the first of those ships to be found by divers and excavated, or whatever you call it, um, in, investigated, mm-hmm. uh, was the Girona up by Giant's Causeway in the northeast of, of Ulster. Right. And I loved that story. I'd seen the pictures. And so going into the room in the Ulster Museum where all the artefacts from the Girona was, was a terrific thrill. But the best thing of all was this tiny little ring, this tiny golden ring, um, which was there, very humble ring, uh, rather crudely made. And I thought, that is fantastic. And I went back uh, to talk more with Sinead Morrissey. And I I showed her, there was a postcard, and I showed her a postcard. And she said, that's a poem. And I (laughs) said, get off, it's mine. (laughs) (laughs) I saw it first. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Beautiful. So that was quite an intervention from Sinead Morrissey, wasn't it? Yes, it was. It was. And, and uh, she, she contributed, I think, greatly to the, the early draft of, of, of um, my, my collection. But um, it, it was rather strung out in, in, the, in finding and pushing through the, the actual printing of it. So um, I was able to put in some later poems. And of course, this is one. And uh, it, it starts off the collection. Okay, so that's the, the activating event, the trigger, if you like. But what did it trigger in you, Mick? Because I can tell that there's, I, I, don't, I don't know, that, that there's something for you in all of this. I, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, I wrote, I, I came to Poetry Late, so I was writing this in my mid getting on towards my late 60s. Mm-hmm. Um, all my life I had loved sailing, and in my 60s I bought my own small boat and was sailing the west coast of Ireland and the coast of Ulster. So I was getting more and more into the feel of the coast and the stories of the coast. So that was one thing it triggered, um, mm-hmm. a sense that uh, this was a coast with a history uh, a very 
interesting, often tragic history. And that spoke very much to the sailing me, if you like. Um, I've already said that, that I found the Armada a very romantic episode in in English history, although it's seen rather differently in Irish history. Um, mm -hmm. Very often the uh, Armada survivors came ashore and were actually massacred by English soldiers. So there is a, a slightly different take. But also it, it, it spoke, I think, to me of, as I was in a sense looking back at a, a lifetime of, of affections and of loving, uh, it, it spoke to me about how important relationships are. It sounds very hackneyed, but how important it is to, to engage in relationships. And this seemed to be a story about, about engaging, about taking that step towards someone else. Right. Beautifully put. And so just so we can nail down the historical scenario, the Spanish Armada came to invade England, 1588. The south coast of England. Yeah. They, so they sailed up along the south coast of England. Yep. Then, you know, they were fighting their way along, yep. got defeated, and then they had to go up around north of Britain, and then they ended up, this on the route home, this was... This is on the route home. The route home, and, and you've got this lovely moment in the poem where just at the end of the, the line you say turning south at last round Ulster, just as he dared. And that's the end of the line. And then the next line, to start dreaming again of light and warmth and home. And then the next line, the luck ran out. And so this is when he ran ashore Yep, yep. at this point. And presumably this would have been an engagement ring? Certainly some kind of promise, isn't it? Mm. Um, the, the Irish still use them. They call them cladder rings. And they've got uh, a clasped hand and then you can engrave a name on it or you can engrave a, a um a promise and i suppose this is a promise um okay. i have nothing more to give you except my heart i am giving you my heart mm -hmm. and he sailed away uh presumably a young soldier we don't we don't we know nothing about them um but uh these were two people and uh he was wearing a ring in which she had promised him her affection. Well, one thing I will certainly do is in the show notes, I'll put a link to maybe some historical background on the Girona for anyone who's interested. If, yeah, if we can find a photo online of the ring, that would be the icing yep. on the cake. Yep. And so this quotation, Meg, I have nothing more to give you except my heart. You say it should go on except my heart. Does that mean it's a well-known phrase in Spanish? Yes, um, as far as I can can uh, tell from from basically look, looking up the beginning of the quotation, it is uh, a known romantic declaration, right. if you want to put it that way. Right. So um, I don't think probably the, uh, the the woman who was giving the ring invented it. I think it was one of these known known right. uh, ways of expressing your your affection. And is it possible that there was another ring that she had that had the other? It's just occurring to me as we talk that had the completion of the, the phrase well, on it. That hadn't occurred to me either, but you're absolutely right. I mean, this is a mutual, 
the, the exciting thing about love is that it is mutual. Uh, mm. Sometimes not <laughs> when you get into complications. Well, but that's but, the aspiration, at least in the beginning. <laughs> we won't go there. But um, yes, I think it's entirely possible. I'd never thought of that. Um, certainly, no one has ever been able to identify his name or to work back as to who she might be. And as far as I know, nobody has ever thought to have tried to identify the 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 twin ring right i mean that you would you would be some archaeologist if you did that wouldn't you <laughs> well it would be a wonderful down four centuries it would be a, a wonderful series of connections right but in a way the fact that we've just got this tantalizing half of the phrase is what makes it perfect for a poet right i think it does be, not not just because it it allows you to to play around a bit um but also because it it mirrors the situation. Uh, you have the heart, one half of a, a couple alive, yeah. the other half dead. So it, yeah. it is about the failure to complete the circle. Mm. Gosh, yes, in more sense than one. In many senses. Because the others, you know, the lucky ones on the fleet did complete the circle. I mean, yes, they did. And a number of ships did get home. But this was, and you know, I was obviously doing a little bit of reading up on this before we came. There, there was a tremendous loft of life on the ship, wasn't there? Yes, there was, um, and and uh, it, it's a where she came ashore was was blown ashore. It is a, a dangerous shoreline uh, if you've got a, a northerly. Um, you're, you're at the foot of cliffs. You have very little chance of survival. And are you saying you have actually sailed this yourself? I, I've sailed along that coast, yes. Um, that particular bit, uh, I sailed along. I, I have a small, rather old-fashioned boat, or I did have then, uh, and I often sailed her single-handed, and I was single-handed for that stretch. I was heading from Port Rush towards Rathlin Island, and that's where you start getting into the North Channel that separates Ireland from Scotland. Mm -hmm. And it's a, uh, a place of strong tides. Uh, and where you have strong tides, the winds can interact with them in a very violent way. And you have steep cliffs, uh, rocky, rocky outliers, not an easy coastline at all. And so how does it feel to be sailing on there single-handedly, no, presumably knowing the history? It, you have a mixture of emotions. There's a, a, a constant alarm bell ringing in your mind when, you, when you're sailing. Mm. Just, you know, muted, but nonetheless, I've got to watch out for myself here. But then there's also all the other things. There is the joy of, of getting a boat to move in the way you want it to. Yeah. And there is the enjoyment of being part of a natural world in a natural way so you're you're part of tides you're part of cliffs you're part of sea life and you're not using a motor you're using a natural force the power of the wind you know it strikes me that you would you would really have to be a sailor to write this poem and you know, throughout the collection, actually, this is one of the things that I noticed. You know, there's a there's a lovely because you've got quite a lot of poems about sailing and mm -hmm. 
um, the view from the sea. And th there's one line in another poem, seen from the sea, it's different. Yes. And it struck me that what you were giving us is, is the opposite view that we used to have. Because, I mean, all right, there are a lot of poets in Ireland. A lot of poems have been written in and by and about Ireland. Yep. But usually what we get is, is the view of landlubbers like me. So, you know, the, the hills and the valleys and the streams, or at best, from the, the sea's point of view, standing, looking out to sea. But a lot of the perspectives you present in the poetry in this book are what it looks like from the sea, how the land looks like from the world of the sea. And you've got some yeah. amazing descriptions of seas. I mean, how did that inform you in, in terms of the writing of this? Well, I think you're absolutely right. Uh, this wonderful poetry about the power of the sea, there's wonderful poetry about the seashore. There's much less poetry written from the point of view of what it is actually like to be out on the sea in a boat which is at the mercy of the sea, which is taking advantage of everything the sea can offer. And I think that it has been a real joy to try and express some of that feeling. And clearly this poem although it's not about my own voyage, as some of the other poems are, uh, nonetheless is, is deeply informed by the sense of what it is like being on a dark night when the wind's getting up, you're not sure whether your anchor is going to hold, and in their case it didn't. Yeah, I mean, I'm also almost getting the sense that this, is, this could have been written by a lucky survivor. Yes, um, it, it, it is... Yes, it, it is about uh, what it is like to, to come safely ashore or not. Mm. Um, and I suppose I, I, I think I probably wished he had come ashore and, and wanted to allow him to a voice in a way. Yeah, that, that, that's it, because there is such longing and heartbreak in this poem. And it's, it's like the movie that you know has the sad ending, but you want to. You're still rooting for the couple right to the end. Yeah, and then you yeah. know it's not going to happen. It's not going to turn out right. Yes, I think that 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 is. Um, I'm not sure I, I'd thought of that before. Very often, uh, when you're asked about a poem, you discover things about it that, that you hadn't realised. But but I think that's very true. Okay, so you you went to the museum. Sinead gave you the poem. You made sure it was your poem and not hers. <laughs> mm -hmm. What happened then? I mean, is how close is what we've got here on the page to the initial draft? Um, the second stanza giving the, the narrative of the, the Armada's progression around, around the coast and what actually happened, that hasn't changed very much from the initial um, I had difficulties trying to get it started. I was initially offering it to my sister-in-law, Anna, who was about to marry Ian, and I thought I needed to put a bit of their story in and realised that if it was going to be offered to them, it needed to be actually much more focused on the Girona story. Mm -hmm. So the, the beginning was a bit tricky. And then I always have trouble with endings. The third stanza about how the ring went to the bottom of the sea, how it emerged again, I overwrote 
and had to cut out a lot of excess verbiage. But that pretty much was the direction in which I was going. I mm. couldn't get the I couldn't get the ending right. I could get the idea that there might be different interpretations in different lives to what those words represented. And I could get as a, I think probably as someone in their 60s who had been through various ways of, of affection, myself and love, I could see how each life goes in its own direction. I couldn't mm -hmm. quite work out how to end it. I, I usually over egg endings and gradually I pared it away and eventually came to what is not not a quote from another poem I'm very fond of, but is very much influenced by it. And that's a poem by the, the English poet Philip Larkin of the sort of 60s and 70s and 80s. Yeah. And it's his poem, one of his most famous poems, but actually probably slightly misunderstood, I think. It's the Arundel Tomb, an Arundel Tomb. Mm -hmm. And he ends up, what will survive of us is love. Yes. And he's actually questioning that statement quite a lot in the poem. Yeah, it's but not it's not as full-throated as, as it sounds yeah, out of context, yeah. but... But he does come back to that, Yeah, eventually comes back to that affirmation. Mm. And I think a lot of us who, who, particularly in our younger days when we were looking for poems about love, we, we did look at that poem and think particularly that ending is, is very mm. moving. And yeah. although it wasn't directly in my mind, I think it very strongly influenced the way that the poem finally ended up. Well, it, I, I think you've done a beautiful job with the ending, Mick. And you see, the, the romantic image of poetry is it all comes out in one glorious effusion and, yep. and we never have to touch anything. But what's, well, certainly in my experience and a, a lot of the poets that I'm talking to for this show, is it, very often it's about patience and uh, of sitting and, and waiting and questioning the first thought and, and being very sensitive to when it isn't right. I think that's very true. And I'm actually, I need help with that process. I've found that um, often I can work out what needs to go, but more often I rely on the uh, suggestions of fellow poets. I've always found enormously helpful to have a group of of close uh close poet friends who you can share drafts with and i have i'm lucky to have such a group now mm -hmm. um i helped bring it into being uh about 12 15 years ago and it's been a great strength for me and one of the things it does is to alert me uh I don't always agree with what's suggested, but often I go away and mull it over and think, yes, they are right. That line's not necessary. Yes, the poem should start a bit later than I've started with it. It's too complicated. Yes, the poem should end there, not mm. go on and yeah. try to keep repeating what you've already actually established. And one thing I notice is you, you've got that wonderful rhyme at the end and you know, for the most of the poem, it's not rhyming. It, it's it's like a free verse kind of equivalent yep. of blank verse, which I think is yep. perfect for telling this telling the story. Yes, 
but it, you get a bit of lift off at the end, don't you, with that um, no tengo mas que dar, being and giving is what we are. You yes. know, that, that really clinches it. And it's in, oh, this has just occurred to me, that's where the two halves come together, isn't it? Yes, I suppose it is. That's a lovely you, thought. You could say that. <laughs> that is a you lovely say thought, that. Mark. Yes. Well, let's, let, let's say that, that that's what it is. But also looking back, you know, before that, the previous lines before that, you've got conclusions and collision, which is almost rhyming, not as full. And then before that, you have got give everything and then giving in the previous stanza. So it's almost as though it's, it's, the rhyme is revving up as you get mm. closer to the end. Was, was that a conscious decision or is it just... I don't think so. I, I, I do love internal rhyme, rhymes that, that mm. don't necessarily come at the end of each line, but which the music plays from one line to the next uh, or two or three f- lines further on. And I tend to, I very rarely do that consciously. I will sometimes look for a, a, another word that I feel is, is going to, to have more music in it. Um, but it, I, I, I find it's a fairly unconscious thing. Well, it's a, it's a wonderful instinct towards the end. It really, um, it really gives it a lift. And you mentioned Larkin, which I hadn't spotted. The, the thing, you know, the, the poet that I picked up was uh, Shakespeare. When yes. The Tempest, you've got Full Fathom Five and Rich and Strange. How was The Tempest hovering in your imagination as you were writing this? I, th- I think that's, it's such a wonderful, it, it's, it's Ariel's song in The Tempest when mm-hmm. the, the sort of the, the sprite, the, the, uh, the elf is, is leading the king's son astray by singing this this song and it, it i've always just loved the the concept of sea change the, the the way that the sea turns things into something else and mm. when i got to that point um it just seemed it it, it just quite it, it, i didn't consciously say i'm going to quote it just flooded in in a way mm-hmm. But it, it, those are favourite lines of mine. The other thing, of course, about that is, and again, it wasn't conscious, but, but it, it feels fitting, is that uh, a young Shakespeare would have been in London uh, yes. during the Amadi yes, episode. Would, yeah. mm-hmm. And I would imagine um, was fairly deeply influenced by it. Um, so it... Looking back, it it feels entirely right that if you're writing about mm, yeah. the Armada of the yeah, 16th yeah, yeah. century, that that Shakespeare somehow finds his way into. Absolutely, I mean, it would have been a national crisis. It's something that everybody lived through together. Absolutely, yes. And yes. Um, hmm. Guess now I'm looking at it as we talk. I'm looking at the line endings. Another, uh, the ending of the um, the historical second first paragraph talking about the sea classed every soul on board to its cold breaking heart and i think that is such a devastating phrase it's cold breaking heart because mm. if it were a human heart that were breaking it would be there would be a warmth in it there would be love yeah. yeah but what you're describing it's not it's not the sea's heart breaking it's the heart of the sea is breaking things and yes. so it's cold and it's crushing and it's the opposite of what we would associate a yeah. heart with Yes, I think that's absolutely right. That 
The sea is not a sentimental place at all. The sea is not a sentimental force. It goes its way and it won't love you. It won't hate you. It just goes its way. It's an impersonal, immensely powerful force. And, and you mix with it at your, at your peril. Mm-hmm. And it has great rewards as too. Uh, it, it, is, it can be a magic place, but um, it is magic and it is um, perilous to its own, um, uh, to, to its own um, way, in, in its own way. It doesn't take account of us, which is why it's so tragic, of course, with global climate change that, that we are affecting not just the land, but we are in major ways affecting the sea too. Well, Mick, I, I really think you've done a terrific job with this, that, you know, looking into that cold, breaking heart of the sea and, and plucking such a, a beautiful poem from it. So thank you very much for sharing it today. Maybe this would be a good point to hear it again. No Tengo Mas for Anna and Ian by Mick Delap. With this ring and down four hundred years the voice of the giver plucks out the words engraved inside its handcrafted golden circle. No Tengo Mas que da. I've no more to give you. It should go on except my heart no tengo mas que date, pero mi corazón. I have nothing more I can give you except my heart. But the ring with its clasped hands was too small for all the words, and she never had a second chance. His Girona was rushing to join Spain's armada, sailed late for England, glory, and the shock of the Channel battles. Drake the fireships, storms, and helter-skelter flight. He survived them all. The struggle to weather Scotland, the breakout north about into the Atlantic. But turning south at last, round Ulster, just as he dared to start dreaming again of light and warmth and home, their luck ran out. In the dark of a late October northerly, the Girona struck Lacada Point, and the high sea clasped every soul on board to its cold, breaking heart. We don't know his name, only his ending. About her, nothing, except that golden ring, lying now full fathom five, washed by the tides deeper each day into the changing months and years. Four centuries on, divers found it, encrusted in sea growth, prized it loose, and brought it back up, rich and strange, to emerge unchanged. No tengo mas. I am nothing except in giving. Perhaps it says, giving myself to you has made me. It could be 
I've never given everything. Even an unvarnished, I have nothing more to give. Each ring hammers out its own conclusions. And something gleams from the ashes, endures the collision between our joys and losses. No tengo mas que dar. Being and giving is what we are. No Tango Mas by Mick Delap is from his latest collection, Opening Time, published by Arlen House. Mick Delap came to poetry relatively late on in his 30 years with the BBC World Service. He is the English-raised son of an Irish father. A founder member of Magma Poetry magazine, he published his first collection, River Turning Tidal, with Lagan in Belfast in 2004, and his second collection, Opening Time, with Arlen House in Dublin in 2015. He is an active member of the workshop Nevada Street Poets. The sea fascinates him as an accomplished single-handed sailor, and the natural world and now the climate emergency are also constants. As he approaches 80, old age and its late challenges both intrigue and inform his own practice. A Mouthful of Air is a poetry podcast hosted by Mark McGuinness. New episodes are released every other Tuesday. If you enjoy the show and you'd like to help me reach more poetry lovers, you can do this by telling a friend about it or by taking a few seconds to leave a rating or even a brief review on Apple Podcasts. If you would like a full transcript of every episode sent to you via email, including the poem text, you can sign up for this at a mouthful of air.fm slash subscribe. If you'd like to follow the show on social media, you can find all the links as well as a full episode archive at a mouthful of air.fm. The music and soundscapes for the show are created by Javier Whaler. Sound production is by Breaking Waves and visual identity by Irene Hoffman. A Mouthful of Air is produced by the 21st Century Creative, with support from Arts Council England via a National Lottery Project grant. Thank you for listening. I'll be back soon with another poem.